the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the long chain of being alien revealed by a star-hopping jack-of-all-trades, laser blues and anti-grav shoes. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We talk with Charles E. Gannon this time on the podcast in the first of a two-part interview discussing Chuck's new Cain Reorden series novel, Mark of Cain. Chuck takes us into the complex political world of the Terran Republic and talks about this action-packed novel that also is full of some very cool science fiction ideas. So that's coming up. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. The Bain September mass market paperbacks have left the chute and are charging into the arena, snorting fire. So get your ropes ready, cowboys and cowgirls. Here they come. First, there's Alternate Routes by Tim Powers. Something weird is happening on the Los Angeles freeways. A government agency is using the freeway anomalies for disturbing purposes, and its chief is determined to have ex-Secret Service agent Sebastian Vickery killed because of a secret he learned years ago at a halted presidential motorcade. It's Tim Powers' versions of ghosts. They're very scary and very cool. Next out is Target Rich Environment, Volume 1 by Larry Correa. Together for the first time, 14 action-packed tales of demons, monsters, vampires, and cosmic horrors too terrible to name. And the men and women who take them all down. Oh, and toss in an interdimensional insurance salesman for good measure. The first ever collection of short fiction from New York Times bestselling author Larry Correa. Also in September is Her Majesty's American by Steve White. In an alternate future where the British Empire never crumbled, the spaceships of Her Majesty's Navy work to keep the spaceways safe. But there are those among the stars who are not so happy being subjects of the British Empire, and they will do their worst to destroy the hated empire head-on. Yet standing against the coming anarchy and tyranny is one intrepid intelligence officer with the Navy prepared to risk all for Queen and Empire. And best of all, he's Her Majesty's American. Her Majesty's American by Steve White, Target Rich Environment, Volume 1 by Larry Correa, and Alternate Routes by Tim Powers are all available at booksellers everywhere. This is part one of a two-part interview. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. One welcome, Charles E. Gannon, to the podcast. Hello, Chuck. Hi, how are you doing, Tony? Pretty good. Um, Charles E. Gannon is the author of Compton Crook Award-winning Nebula Finalist Fire with Fire, Trial by Fire, and Raising Kane in the Kane Reorden series. Further books in the series are uh, There's Kane's Mutiny. Uh, we'll talk about another one in a moment. He is the co-author with Eric Flint of 1636, The Papal Stakes, and 1636, Commander 
Cantrell on the West Indies in Air Rings Ring of Fire series, and there's others, right? Uh, uh, Vatican the... Sanction, and then there Vatican. were a couple of anthologies, yeah. Uh, with Steve White, Chuck is the co-author of the Starfire series novels, um, Extremist, Imperative, and Oblivion. Chuck is also the author of multiple short stories. He is a member of Sigma, the SF think tank, which has advised various intelligence and defense agencies since the start of the millennium, which was a long time ago now. <laughs> a form, it doesn't seem like that long. Yeah, I know. A former professor, Chuck lives in Annapolis, Maryland, with his wife and children, although some of his children are deployed and such these days. Um, out now at Booksellers Everywhere is Mark of Cain, which is book five, I believe, in the Terran Republic series, featuring series hero Cain Riordan. Um, so, Mark of Cain, we open on Earth on a dock. I think we're in the Chesapeake somewhere. Um Kane is, we're not, okay, okay, you better, <laughs> so, tell us what's going on, all right, Connor's there, who, who Kane is, um, who is helping him set up for a solo sale, um, everything seems kind of peaceful, but it's not going to stay peaceful for long, um, I, you know, there's so much to set up, maybe you could just dive in and, and tell us where we are in the, in the series, and who are these two people, <laughs> for one thing. Okay, uh, so so this um, the series thus far, uh, each book has followed on the events of the other one with very little time break. This one is unusual in that more than two years have gone by from the time that um, Kane basically uh, stood down uh, official official orders to release um, folks who are called. We'll talk about them later. I'm sure the lost soldiers uh, into their custody without any guarantees as to their safety. Uh, he was not about to do that, and uh, as a result, there was a thought at the end of book uh, book four that uh, um, uh, Kane's mutiny. Uh, what a strange what a strange title, right? Um, that he would be in fact tried for either treason or mutiny. Uh, there were powers that tried to do that; they did not succeed. He, uh, however, was obviously persona non grata in the uh, in the field, too hot to handle. So uh, he. Uh, reunited with his son that he's really never had a chance to spend any time with because he was uh, in cold sleep for the first 13, 14 years of his life and then has been uh, trying to take care of uh, various assignments he's been handed out since the end of an attempted invasion of Earth. So he goes home. Uh, Connor's mother, Elena, um, who, who he only spent a very brief amount of time with, um, and she didn't know he was still alive, uh, albeit in cold sleep. So they had a very, very brief reunion, uh, literally measured in, in hours, um, when she was wounded at the end of that invasion and was and had to be taken to um, the medical facilities of the most advanced of the various species in order to, be, to have any hope of survival. So he went back after his, um, after having been, uh, you know, after the trial or the trial that didn't become a trial, because no charges were brought, he basically um, uh, approaches Connor and says, um, "If you want, let's go. Let's go get to know each other, and let's go do that someplace off the grid." And that's what they do. They go down to an island in the Caribbean known as Nevis, uh, and uh, they live there. And he's essentially homeschooling uh, Connor, who is also going to make an early run at enlistment in Annapolis, which is not. Um, 
service has has certainly jumped up as major on everybody's mind since Earth narrowly avoided uh, essentially being under the dominion of uh, of alien powers. So um, they're there, and you're and absolutely right. He's uh, he's sort of seeing Connor off for a solo sale, and in however we're getting cutscenes where obviously something else uh, is uh, is occurring. Uh, there are uh, drones that have been released from a ship, which are seeking uh, seeking out Kane. At first, we think it might be seeking both Kane and Connor, but ultimately seeking Kane and to no good end. Yeah, um, because Kane knows something that is um, well. He knows a lot of things, but he he's got knowledge that um, that that is detrimental to some of the powers that be on Earth right now. So, what is this setup of the Earth politics, and how does it relate to this um, this new uh, group of um, of of alien species that we've encountered in in the nearby stars, and who are these other species? Because they they're not super advanced um, beyond us. There's um, but they they have various degrees, and they and there's um, we've learned a lot about them over the the past few books. So to to jump back, Earth Earth is now divided mostly. Um, the 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 preeminence of the nation state has sort of given way to the preeminence of what's called the block. So the blocks uh, fall along sort of broad cultural and political lines that that are are most for the most part traditional. Uh, one block which is called uh, the UCA, uh, which is uh, the Union, uh, the no United uh, Commonwealth and Allied States UCAS. Uh, and that's pr- pretty much the five eyes. That's uh, the U.S., that's Canada, Australia, England, New Zealand, plus some other you know, frequent pals, I guess you could say, por- uh, policy supporters. Uh, there's essentially another entity that's centered on Russia. There's another entity that's centered on China, the European Union. And then there's a sort of polyglot entity, which is Japan is probably the most noteworthy power, but it also includes Brazil and India. Um, the reason these blocks came into existence was um, at the at the end of the prior century, because when this novel takes place, it's roughly, it starts in, I think, uh, I want to say late 2123. Um, I'm pretty sure about that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm going to check right there. Yeah, late, uh, mid-2123. 2120, 2123. And um, so uh, it's been, it's been about uh, 40, years, 50 years since uh, it, uh, space, space exploration, presence in space as, as a full-time thing, as a space culture, became very important when Earth had to deflect um, an asteroid that turned out not to be so much an act of nature after all. And, uh, and then shortly after that, because of what was, what was found on that asteroid, there were powers that, and uh, I guess you could say folks in the intelligence community who were able to say, well, we don't know how somebody got in our system, but they got in and we're pretty sure they did it using something that would be considered faster than light, even if it is not, even if you can't go the speed of light that, you know, you can get around faster than light does, which is, you know, consistent with quantum entanglement and, and all of that business. Um, so there's a huge, there's a, a huge amount of money that has to be spent to figure out how to do this. In order to do that, 
these blocks have to form. They were already beginning to form to fund expensive things uh, in in high energy physics and the colonization of the moon and Mars. Uh, these are these were just such big ticket items that that no single nation, particularly when the national will was not hugely behind these things. Uh, the only way to get them funded at all was by essentially pooling resources. And you were now looking at a time when they've essentially become um, preeminent. That doesn't mean that national character uh, or culture has gone away, but it means that, that you're talking about some very, very blended economies. Now, in the wake of the invasion, this is it becomes necessary to create um, the thing that we were never able to create simply because we wanted to, something like a world government suddenly becomes really pretty essential because uh, we um, we got our head handed to us pretty much during the invasion and uh, we have to rebuild and we have to up tech uh, and it's simply not going to be efficient to do that unless everything is pooled and unless you know if everybody is duplicating efforts you've got a problem and the only way not to duplicate efforts is to essentially have everybody all, all the all the oxen on the team pulling in one direction um, so, but that's not necessarily a very easy thing. That's not always a very happy thing. And as you said, some of the powers that be in there, some of the blocks are less than delighted with the fact that, um, that Kane has been, they learn before Kane does that he's been invited to go to, um, to meet with the species that, uh, that actually took Elena into safekeeping. Um, the moment they realize that, they're able to trace where the signal is going to go to him through the through the secure channels, and they get in there with an attempt with these drones to eliminate him beforehand. Uh, he he does have information which is considered quite crucial. The really quick version of this is that um, he is aware that one of the groups um, in the in the uh, there are, there are only five intelligent species four depending on how you count it and that's that's kind of what he knows that there is a sub branch of humanity which is actually has been working against Earth's interests um, and if that was to become common knowledge the political structure of what's called the um, the accords are such that one of those two powers either Earth or this other sub branch would have to speak the entire species and once they would if they were to have a war over that all the indications are that the laws of the accord are such that the accord the rest of the accord could not intervene it would be considered an internal dispute and that's one of the the fundamental laws of the accord that the accord does not what goes on inside any given species they have absolute autonomy and authority regarding that so um, if his if the, he has this knowledge and if that knowledge became common knowledge, which is what some of the blocks on Earth fear he might do with it, if he comes out of his incognito sort of uh, sort of life outside of outside of all official circles, um, they're they're not willing to take the chance that he won't uh, either either volunteer the information or be snapped up and somebody gets the information out of him. So they decide to preemptively attempt to silence him permanently. Uh, that doesn't work out. Um, and yeah. that's kind of really the launch into the, no the the novel story. So it's gone from him sort of hiding out with Connor to the, the need to, he needs to go find, he needs to get off Earth and go deal with um, what he's wanting to do, which is find Elena. Um, and 
so and and now it's become sort of imperative that he that he do this as as part of a mission to the Dornani. Um, so tell us a little bit. All right. So what is the organization he works for? And let's just talk about Kane's character a little bit too, um, who he is and such. And um, what are they attempting to do um, to get it to get him off the planet? Like uh, who, for instance, is the Patch? We got to talk about that guy. <laughs> and um, Downing and the uh, Phelan um, and and the, the people on Earth that are his friends or allies. So um, the the group he was working for, um, which was not so much a matter of, of of choice, but something you fall into, as is often the case when when you when wartime is thrust upon you unexpectedly, um, people are called to serve in unusual ways, and that was the case with with Kane because Kane um, initially was sort of roused out of a cold sleep. Um, which he shouldn't have been in the first place, but there was a security misunderstanding there. And he was essentially roused out of cold sleep because no one would look for him if, when he was checking if the ruins, uh, alien ruins were in fact alien ruins. They were. First contact resulted. And because he's been, therefore, the go-to guy for first contact, um, he's constantly been tapped for these sort of outreach missions. Um, at the end of the last book, Kane's Mutiny, he's been pretty much drummed out. Um, this time he is actually not going as an official representative of what is called IRIS, which is the um, uh, Institute for Reconnaissance Intelligence and Security, which is essentially an umbrella organization that tapped uh, intelligence, intelligence operatives inside of a variety of different nations intelligence activities as a way to sort of create a tap on and an oversight on anything that might be going on regarding um, the cause, the, the, because it, it's known that there was an exosapient group behind the, the asteroid that almost took out Earth. And so they've been, they were created, their initial mandate was to watch for that. Obviously, when first contact takes place, their mandate and, and their activity jumps into high gear. Um, and that's who he had worked for, but he's no longer part of that. Um, there, there were a bunch of powers that sort of came in after Kane's mutiny and said, um, nope, this is too much. Uh, th- there's got to be more transparency here, um, which sounds like a great thing, but ultimately they had their own, um, they had their own motivations. So it's Kane's old friends, if you will. Uh, Kane's old friends left inside of Iris on the outside in something called uh, Odin's, uh, and they are working together um, to get him off world because he really he does he is not going as as a member of Iris he is not going as a member of the State Department as a member of the Consolidated Terran Republic he's none of that he's essentially going on his own but as everybody kind of knows he's been the person who's done every other first contact largely largely out of sometimes he was he was asked for sometimes out of just chance and bad luck. Um, and so it is kind of understood that even if he's going as an independent agent, so to speak, um, his, his voice will probably carry some weight in the, in the, the Dornani Collective. This is the last group, the, the, the most advanced group, and the one that has never allowed anybody uh, inside their borders. As a matter of fact, they have not even communicated with uh, humanity really since the end of the invasion. Um, which they helped repel. 
Um, so this is all terra incognita. No, you know, uh, there's a pun there, but we'll just let that go by. And um, and so that's that is who sent him out there. The patch is part of the in the wake of of Iris essentially being, I guess you could say, sort of uh, actively deconstructed. Another group rose up, and the patch, uh, a, a a survivor of what's called the battle, or really the ambush of Barney Ducey, which is Barnard Star. To see, and uh, which was essentially a sort of interstellar Pearl Harbor event that kicked off the invasion. He's one of the few survivors. He's the ranking survivor of that. Uh, he is called the Patch because he only has one eye uh, left, and he sustained other damage. And uh, his his name, and it's just pure coincidence that his name should happen to be David Weber. Um, who I understand by just pure coincidence is, is going to be using me in one of his books, uh, because he's been a very big fan of the series, I ought to say, and uh, always been one of its boosters, and I'm indebted to him for that, and, and he's just a great guy anyhow. So, yeah, I'm indebted to him for all of that. And so, so yeah. he's one of the people who's sort of working behind the scenes to make sure that this takes place and that Kane gets Kane is gone before anybody knows to look for him being gone. Yeah, when Kane needs a ship, somebody's got to send him out there too. That's right, and and he gets on a he basically gets on a very fast transport that gets him to a ship that is already bound out system. That ship is going to a neutral system where the Dornani will come and pick him up in uh, a, a ship uh, that is the name of which is known and the captain of whom is known to previous readers in the series. This is Andal, who's been a character, a very, very central character since the first book. He is the Dornani's sort of outreach slash liaison sort of oversight uh, in terms of contact with with humanity as per Earth. Um, and so he's there to pick up Cain. However, uh, right before that happens, or right as that, right as he's sort of showing up right before that, um, there are there's an attempt to destroy the ship that has brought Cain here. So clearly Cain has once again found himself doing something that's got him in somebody's crosshairs. And although it's, it's an attempt at a false flag operation because it looks like the ships are the Arakur, which was one of the invader species, but it, everything about those ships uh, and a variety of other things suggests that they were actually, um, they were examples of these ships which had been, which had been taken by Earth for examination purposes, for essentially, um, uh, essentially re- reverse engineering the technology, and somehow they've been they were out here in this neutral system, in an attempt to eliminate uh, Kane, and also apparently put the blame on um, a species that has now been very much sort of uh, brought to heel under uh, under very very close turn scrutiny. So, um, yeah. so, so, so dirty so somebody, tricks are still being pulled. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody on earth does, wants to get him for sure. And the, the, the one other thing about the earth side of the story before we, uh, move on would be that, um, he's also running from the fact that he might get, just get vivisected if he stays behind because, um, they found out that the Theriac treatment that he received in previous novel is um, is something else, right? It's something that might transform a lot of things. Yeah, and and one shouldn't give that too much of this away. We'll we'll go on a very. Let's just say that it, 
it might look like this is the sort of thing that an author puts in place simply to give an excuse, that he, you know, that he has to get the hell off Earth and maybe never go home again. It's a lot more than that. Um, to, to really quickly synopsize, in the third book, uh, at the end, again, uh, the victim of a sabotaged uh, air breather, uh, a filtration device, he is, is, his lungs are in, in very, very heavily compromised because um, he's taking in local spores. In order to rejuvenate him from that, the, the, the species that he has gone to visit, uh, along with this other diplomatic team, they're called the Slasrithi. Um, uh, the Slasrithi have to make a decision whether they're going to let him die, because the only way they can reverse this is by giving him something that they simply refer to as the Theriac. Um, and so they give him the Theriac, and, you know, the, uh, and he does come around very, very quickly. What is only found out in this book when he's getting a physical before leaving Earth um, is that uh, it seems to have done a whole lot more than that. To, to, without, without giving away too much in the book, let's just say that a lot of injuries he sustained throughout the, the novels thus far have been uh, significantly reversed, and other things may be happening as well and seem to have happened as well. And those things could be so transformative in terms of medicine on Earth uh, of all kinds and, and geriatric populations. And in fact, how old might you be before you are a member of something that would be called a geriatric population? Um, uh, you know, the bottom line is he's the, he is the only example of that. And as you said, uh, while, while probably most people would would stop at certain points it's been noticed that there are there are certain political and and corporate groups which um sometimes for reasons of extreme caution sometimes for reasons of extreme greed um will stoop to measures or go to measures that would be considered unacceptable by others and one of them is the fact that you know if just blood samples aren't going to cut it like you said, they might cut him open to find out why this is happening. Um, so, so he's got, um, he definitely has in this novel within the first, within the first couple of dozen pages, he has uh, a very strong carrot and a very strong stick that are, uh, that are propelling him out from Earth and into the Dornani Collective. Yeah. And so he goes. And um, there is, there is, um, a character we met before, I think, right? On on duel, on duel. Um, is his his first contact, and this guy is is or thing. <laughs> he kind of looks. Maybe talk about the the way the door done. I mean, you describe them as have lamprey like mouse. Um, uh, but and they have a very odd and and strange mating. Um, uh, creation process that is um that is part of the problem that they're facing and and many other things that we can we could dip into as much as you want um but who is this guy and and what what is he to Cain so he ha was essentially um Cain's first encounter as a matter of fact he was humanity's first encounter with face to face with a, a an exosapient uh in the very first book um, and he has, like I said, he is a sort of 
liaison overseer uh, represent almost um, you know de facto advocate for humanity, um, and um, he is uh, he's part of a group that is separate is politically separate from the um, from the rest of the Dornani Collective, and yet is populated um, exclusively by the Dornani uh, Collective. Uh, this is called the custodians. The custodians are uh, the responsibility of whichever species qualifies for the responsibilities and is willing to take them on. And what they are doing essentially is you might call them the um, the guardians of the accord. Uh, not so much in that they're you know wandering around the space with a six shooter on either hip, you know, keeping folks in line. As a matter of fact, if anything, uh, the problem with the custodians that uh, that Earth has experienced through the first four books is they seem very slow to act. Um, and one of the reasons we're going to learn for that in the course of this book is that for a variety of reasons, um, uh, Dornani power is waning. Um, I, I'll, to, to give you a sense of what the book is, once you actually get into Dornani space, the tenor of it, um, it, it imagine, for instance, you, it's, it's about 150 years in the future. It's set in an alien environment but this is a sort of cross of um, the, 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 if you will, the, the adventures of Marco Polo sort of, you know, had a love child with Heart of Darkness, and all of this is taking place against a backdrop and a foreground of a, a sort of fall of Rome in what has once been a, a very, very uh, powerful and advanced alien culture, which is now in part falling apart, because of um, because of they they tend to be disassociating, they don't have family units to begin with, um, and they they sort of ally based on common interests and and I guess you could say cognitive types and templates, um, and and what has gone on over time is that as they have become longer lived, um, they have also become more cautious. They have, uh, and they've, and part of that caution has therefore made them rebound upon what for us would be very, very convincing virtuality. Um, so they can, you know, whereas they used to be out traveling between the stars and, and living life, they find it a whole lot easier to live what is a very, very long life um, inside of, uh, inside of essentially a computer. They are, they're, they are uh, essentially, they're, they're they're put in environments where their bodily needs are met and their minds are in whichever one of several different models i guess you could say of virtuality they choose to travel and exist this is not all of them but it has been a if you will a sort of an an insidious and creeping um uh, it's become in through creeping and insidious incursion it is it has become the preeminent and predominant way that most of them spend most or all of their time. Um, I know that sounds like there's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of freighted language in there, but, but like anything else, there are lots of shades of gray. The custodians are kind of now considered cowboys because by definition they're active. And, and what that does is whereas in, in prior times, custodians might've been populated by almost any type of Dornani for all sorts of reasons, you're looking at sort of a self, a, a, a self-selecting group. It, you know, the the bottom line is you cannot use virtuality if you're a custodian. 
There are a lot of reasons for that, and a lot of it has to do with the possibilities of being compromised through virtuality. But in, in this case, you're, you're sort of looking at a, at, a, at a cultural divide that's taking place based on the different roles that might exist for somebody inside this culture. And so this is exactly what Cain is, is finding himself um, wandering into. And for a variety of reasons, um, he's, he's not told all this right up front, one of the reasons simply being because the Dornani are aware that, that, you know, there's a Korean saying which is very much near and dear to their heart, too, which is we see from where we sit. And, and the more responsible Dornani sit there and they say, well, we could tell him all of this stuff, but then we're depriving him of the opportunity to make up his own mind and to encounter it in the way he's going to encounter it. So, um, and of course, the less, <laughs> the less disciplined or... Um, or Admirable Dornani will try to convince him of exactly how they think things are. And ultimately, in the way he's going to find Elena is he has to pass, if you will, he has to, you might say, pass tests or fulfill quests for a number of Dornani, one who leads to the next, that are contacts. It's sort of, it's sort of like a, he knows that there is this sequence of individuals, one who will introduce him or provide a key to meeting the next, which are the only way he's going to find out what's become of Elena, because the 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 kicker in all this is when he gets there and he finally meets with with the um, with the the senior the the collective senior leadership, they basically have to share with him. Well, we kind of lost her. Um, she was in a she was in a a, a medical cryopod, a cryopod. They didn't know what to do with her. They don't have really a lot of experts in humans and, and the problems here were very, very, that were fairly complicated. So they called in specialists, but they, but the Dornani have a very hard time of sort of enforcing any laws anymore. And so the, so the specialists kind of got bored or they sort of said, well, you know, call us when you get some more news. And ultimately she sort of fell through the cracks and fell through the cracks and, um, and has gone missing as a result of that. Which is, which is very embarrassing for the Dornani, not only because they look bad in front of this really sort of essentially upstart species that is only a, has only a fraction of their technological and, uh, and, uh, and experiential sort of background, but, um, but really is a, is, a, is, a, is a litmus test and indicator of just how much they have fallen apart, that they, can't, they weren't even able to keep track of this. Yeah, and, and this is something that we kind of get a glimpse of in the previous book, so it's not really a spoiler. We know that they have misplaced Elena, <laughs> um, right? Well, we don't know that they've misplaced her. We In the earlier or books, was... we know that they have gone silent. We know that yeah. they could have gotten involved in a lot more of a kinetic fashion in book one, in book two, um, and arguably in book four. They weren't around for much of book three, but even there, they, they really do backpedal, and they are, they are exerting far less power than they would have either the right or even perhaps the obligation to exert in some of these cases. So it, um, all, what all of this does is it sort of explains that it's not because they are... Um, uh, be, be, because they are unenthusiastic, although they are, the, their unenthusiasm is, is not just aimed at Earth. It's not just aimed yeah. at other species. 
it's they are they are falling apart. Right. There's a societal dysfunction. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That was part one of a two part interview. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 37 The mountain passes were their most direct route south, but at this time of year crossing was questionable. The lands that had formerly belonged to House Somsack were treacherous in winter. It wasn't nearly as rugged, high, or cold as the ranges to the south, since the snow here was usually measured in inches rather than feet, but sudden storms came often enough to block the high passes for days at a time. Regardless of how much snow fell, Ashok knew he could make it. But the others would more than likely perish. And without Keita, he wouldn't be able to fulfill Oman's order. He'd offered to carry Keita across the mountains on his back, but the keeper had declined the offer. So they stuck to the hill country and the lower mountain valleys. The trade roads were well maintained. The going was easier, but the weather was still unpredictable. It was common to wake up to a dusting of snow, having the sun melted by noon, and then get rained on for the rest of the day. However, Keita had money, so they were able to sleep at inns most nights. Ashok remained with the team, avoiding speaking to the locals, and Keita or Thera would bring him his food. He slept beneath the wagon every night, ostensibly to protect their goods, but mostly to stay out of sight. Many years before, he'd worked in these lands and didn't want to be recognized. Each morning, they set out again, bright and early. And every day brought them a little closer to his final condemnation in Akershan. Ashok tried to give Thera her privacy. She was a woman, and his limited social knowledge had taught him ladies deserved their privacy. He wasn't sure if that applied to profane fugitives from the warrior caste as well, but it seemed reasonable. One night, Ashok learned that Thera was not in good health. 
There was no inn, so they had made camp beneath the stars. Whether from the influence of the heart of the mountain or just practice, protectors were notoriously light sleepers, and he had been awoken by the sounds of thrashing. Thera was convulsing in her bedroll, muscles contracting violently, eyes rolled back up in her head, seemingly awake but incoherent and speaking nonsense words. When he'd gone to her, Keita had stopped him, warning him that Thera sometimes had these fits, and there was nothing that could be done for her. The keeper stayed with her, her head in his lap, whispering calming words as Ashok had stood there uselessly. The fit had passed shortly, and she'd fallen into a deep sleep as if nothing had happened at all. Keita said such events were rare, and it was best to not speak of them to her at all, to avoid embarrassment. Ashok had heard of such a twitching sickness among members of the first caste, but he was surprised that it existed among the hardy warriors as well. The next day, Thera made no mention of the event, if she even remembered it at all. He was happy to keep avoiding her. In truth, Ashok hadn't spent much time interacting with women. He was no stranger to them, but visiting the pleasure women or being gifted slave girls for the night, great houses tended to be very hospitable to protectors, was drastically different than actually speaking with one. He'd been of the first caste, where women were allowed to hold offices and obligations, but it wasn't as if protectors spent much time in the courts of the capital or the great houses. Their time was spent in the jungles, mountains, slums, and forsaken places abandoned to the criminal element. They were outsiders in the society that their actions made possible. Emotional attachments were discouraged. Such things made it difficult to enforce the law in an unbiased manner. Some protectors were more rigid about that tradition than others. When the terms of their obligation were up, then they'd be assigned a wife. Other than mandatory social niceties and politics, there really wasn't much reason to speak with a woman before that. At least most protectors had grown up around others, but all Ashok had for a childhood was a lie of memorized statutes and governing caste etiquette painted over the casteless dog beneath. In the only world he understood, everyone had a place, and how you treated them was based upon whether they were higher or lower in status, and by how much. Here, they were all equally nothing, which was very confusing. So Ashok avoided Thera. He figured that was for the best. She had yet to roll a bum under the wagon while he was sleeping, as she'd threatened, so their terms must have been acceptable. Except for the times he caught Thera watching him suspiciously, she mostly seemed content to ignore him as well. With Keita, on the other hand, he wasn't so lucky because the keeper was incapable of shutting up about his damned forgotten. During the days, he would try to tell stories of the old times, legends mixed with real history about demons that fell from the sky and a heavenly hero who followed them, forging swords that could smite through demon hide from the hull of his black steel ship and about a people who had risen, then fallen, but who would rise again. As the days passed, Ashok discovered he was less inclined to murder the strange little man. Keita might have been totally delusional, but at least he was passionate about it. 
One morning, Ashok was walking along, trailing after the wagon as their oxen lumbered up a steep hill. It was that much less weight for them to pull, and it felt good to walk anyway. The terrain was rolling and covered in tall brown grass that swayed in the cold wind. Across the hills, fat gray mountains loomed, their tops cloaked in white clouds. It pained him to admit it, as much as he deserved otherwise, but it felt good to be out of his prison cell. To the side, Thera came out of the tall grass, carrying a small bow and a few arrows, her cloak and hair whipping in the wind. He was no longer surprised at how stealthy she was when she set her mind to it. She probably would have made a fine border scout. No luck, Ashok asked. I was hoping to see a rabbit or something. I'm getting sick of jerky and rice. That's the last time I let Keita be our pretend merchant and buy stock for our pretend wagon. Never let a man who grew up on gruel and slop choose your rations. If he wasn't worried about witnesses, he could have chased down an elk on foot and carried it back over one shoulder. Ashok extended his hand toward the bow. I can try. You know how to shoot a bow? It was a weak bow with a light pull weight. Not a proper fighting bow at all. Thus, legal to own, but sufficient for a worker to hunt small game. If it's possible to kill a man with a device, then I've been trained how to use it. Thera began to laugh, then realized Ashok wasn't making a joke. Oh! She didn't give him the bow, but surprisingly, she didn't walk away either. Instead, she fell in beside him, and the two of them followed the slow-moving wagon together. They climbed in silence for a time, listening to nothing but the whistle of the wind through the tall grass and the creak and rumble of their wagon. For just a moment, he could imagine that they were just a man and a woman, out for a stroll on a beautiful winter day. Was this what it was like to be normal? How have you taken to Keita's sermons? Is that what those are supposed to be? Ashok asked. I think so. I've heard them all. I think he practices on me before he tries them on the masses. You should see him work a crowd. He's so enthusiastic that by the time he's done, people actually believe. Preaching is dangerous. Strangely enough, Ashok actually found himself respecting someone for having the courage to do something illegal. He's an odd but brave little man. Yes, I think so. It was a rare sight, but she had a very genuine smile. It was one of the few times he'd seen her without her hood up, and because of the wind, for just a moment, he caught sight of a terrible scar running along the top of her head. Normally it would be hidden from view by her long, dark hair. Thera caught him looking and self-consciously put her hood up to cover it. Ashok was no stranger to injuries, and it was hard to see anyone heal from a head wound that extensive. That hadn't been some superficial cut. That was a skull being put back together. He'd known a few warriors over the years with marks like that, saved by surgeons, but they were usually fools, their brains left dim-witted and damaged from the impact. But Thera's mind seemed as sharp as her many knives. It certainly explained the strange convulsions he'd witnessed. What happened? I was only a child. Something fell on me, and I nearly died. What was it? An axe. I don't want to talk about it. 
He'd been told that women were sensitive about such things, as if her scar could somehow ruin their beauty. But scars were just stories told in flesh. There's no need to hide it. It gives you character. Was that meant as a compliment? She asked, incredulous. Ashok shrugged. I tell the truth. Take it or leave it. Well, there is a need to hide the mark. I'm a criminal, remember? So I'm not in the habit of displaying any distinguishing features that might show up on a wanted poster. But thank you. You're welcome. They continued on in silence for a time, neither of them in a hurry to catch the wagon. So why are you out here, Ashok? I'm avoiding another sermon. Which one? He started talking about an ancient hero being sent by the gods to chase the demons into the sea. Ram Rowan, Thera said thoughtfully. That's one of Keita's favorites, the greatest warrior who ever lived. Keita has not seen me fight. Wow, our protector is humble too. It is not bragging if you can perform on demand, and do not call me protector. Ram Rowan, the first king. By the time Keita gets done telling that story to a barracks full of castless, they're believing that they're so destined for greatness, they're usually ready to rebel on the spot. Cruel foolishness, Ashok muttered. Nothing good comes from a castless thinking they can achieve anything. I once met an untouchable on a beach in Gujara. He'd found a spear. He was very proud of it, and he even used it to try and save his family from a demon. That's brave. No one realizes how hard it is to stand against a demon. I've seen the mightiest warriors flee in terror when faced with such things, but this old untouchable wouldn't budge. After, when he wouldn't put the spear down, they killed him with an arrow without so much as a second thought. So much courage, but they just left him there on the sand for the tide to take out and the demons to eat. Ashok hadn't thought of that incident in a long time. I buried him myself. Thera seemed surprised. Why would you bother? It seemed like the thing to do. Perhaps there had been cracks in his foundation of lies, even before Mindaran's revelation. But he didn't like to dwell on such things, so Ashok changed the subject back. Maybe someday Keita will use that story in a sermon, like this fabled hero from the sky. I've heard that story so many times now. After the demons were cast from the heavens and went about destroying the world, the gods took pity on us and sent their champion to save mankind. Ramroan fell from the sky in a ship made from black steel. Pharaoh recited from memory. Landed in the desert, rallied the survivors, gave us magic, and man chased the demons into the sea. Yes, that's the one. Keita seems fond of it. He had heard a lot of theories as to the origins of the ancestor blades over the years, and that story was as ludicrous as all the others. Keita likes to share the heroic parts to get the castlers riled up, but he doesn't tell them the sad part of the story that comes next. There's a sad part, Ashok asked, intrigued. He must have been saving that for after my miraculous conversion to fanaticism he keeps hoping for. Yes, very sad. A parable about how men are stupid. 
He took all the tribes of Lok, united them into a single kingdom, and won an impossible victory. Yet the demons were supposed to invade the land again some day, and only his bloodline would be able to stop them. So protecting royalty became the important thing in the world. The age of kings was glorious for a time. Keter says they were blessed because the people heeded their gods. But eventually, the sons of Ramroan got too proud for their own good. Ramroan. Mandaran had once referred to the heart of the mountain by that name. There was usually some element of truth to even the strangest of myths, so this supposed champion had probably actually existed. As for the rest, Ashok had no trust in fables. His descendants got greedier and greedier. Keter's books say the age of kings fell apart because they forgot their gods and just used their church as an excuse to steal whatever they wanted. But the way I see it, if the whole world kisses your ass because they think you're the only one who can save them, of course you're going to get cocky. But that only lasts as long as the people still believe. If authority is not respected, authority is not retained. Exactly. A few hundred years later, the idea of demons coming inland was seen as a trick. And the church just a prop to excuse the king's whims. Once they got sick enough of their tyranny, the warriors rose up and destroyed them. The kingdom broke into the houses. The royalty and priests who survived became castless. That's why, no matter what, the law keeps the castless around, just in case the old stories are true. Only the bloodline of the first king can stop the demons. Ashok had actually fought demons. Regardless of Keter's myths, if an army of demons was to crawl out of hell and invade the land, all of the castless in the world would be nothing but a snack. Everything changed because of the excesses of the Age of Kings. Religion was banned, and we ended up with the law instead. Fat lot of improvement that was. Ashok gritted his teeth. Insulting the law was like insulting him. He knew now that was Kuhl's doing, but it was still so ingrained in him that such slights made him angry. Pharaoh caught his reaction and paused. Don't take it personally. I meant no offense. He'd not expected an apology. They followed the wagon quietly for a time, while he tried to come up with a polite response. I suppose if I'm going to spend the rest of my life a criminal... I'd best get used to such talk. We don't hate law, Ashok. We're rebelling against the unjust parts of it, not the whole thing. You'll see. Keter's built something remarkable in the South. You always speak of Keter's accomplishments, but never his prophet. Ashok mused. Do you think he's a charlatan or just a madman? She paused for a moment, unsure how to answer. Neither. Both. Farah shrugged. It doesn't really matter, does it? If it is really the forgotten speaking or just some poor deluded fool hearing voices, people will fight as long as the law is unjust. The law is, by definition, justice. Saying something over and over doesn't make it true. Wrong is wrong like declaring some men whole and others barely more than animals, or where the innocent can be punished on a whim, or where we're deprived of our ability to believe in something more. But you don't believe. I want the freedom to choose for myself. So that is why you fight, for some 
nebulous concept. Freedom isn't nebulous once you've lived it, Ashok. A couple of weeks south of Apura, and skirting the base of the Somsak Mountains, the sky had darkened as terrible storm clouds rolled in. The weak rain turned into a torrential downpour, followed by thunder louder than Thera's alchemy. The wind threatened to rip their canvas cover off. Within minutes, the poor oxen were having a terrible time of it as the road melted into mud and ruts. The water is particularly evil today, Ashok said after a horrendous crash of thunder. Water doesn't have intent, Keita shouted back. That's just superstition. Water is the source of all evil and the home of hell. If water is so evil, how come we make beer out of it? Ashok found it ironic that he was being lectured about superstition by a man who believed in prophecies. Malevolent or not, if we don't get out of this soon, we'll get stuck or lose the animals. That would be awful, Keita agreed. Yes, it would look suspicious if I had to pull the wagon the rest of the way myself, Ashok said. The keeper gave him an incredulous look, trying to decide if Ashok was trying to be funny or not. Ashok let him wonder. As the rain increased in intensity, they found a road sign pointing them toward the next settlement, only a mile away. The temperature continued to drop, and darkness fell long before sundown. Ashok had gotten in front, taken hold of the yoke, and half-guided, half-dragged the blind and scared oxen up the hill and into the relative shelter of a rocky canyon. At times, the wagon would stick, and Ashok would go round to the back and push. A journey that should have taken minutes took hours against the wind and building muck. By the time they reached the settlement, tiny streams had grown into vicious rivers that threatened to tear away the small bridges leading into the village, and Thera was doing everything she could to keep their canvas from being torn off in the wind. The village was called Jarlang. It looked like all the other minor places they'd passed through recently. Ashok counted the lights. There were maybe a couple hundred workers' houses, some other miscellaneous buildings, and a castless quarter on the other side of a now-flooded irrigation canal. There was a single inn, but thankfully it had a barn large enough to fit their wagon. Keita leapt off the wagon and ran for the inn, while Ashok led the team toward the barn. Whether there was room or not, he was going to make room. He was glad to have some structures taller than the wagon around, he had no idea if the heart would sustain him through a lightning strike, but if Thera had any more jugs of her fortress powder stashed, the resulting explosions would probably get him for sure. Luckily, there were a couple of young castlers huddled in the barn, shivering in their rags and watching the fury of the storm through the slats. They saw him coming and prepared a spot. Ashok kept his face down as he ordered them to tend to his animals. If he was recognized, they'd surely sell him out or worse, start worshipping him like the fools on the barge. Of course, when he looked, Thera was no longer in the back of the wagon. She had a way of slipping off on notice to scout whenever they entered civilization. One of the children cared for the oxen, while Ashok leaned against the wagon and waited for his companions. Now that they thought a worker was present, the castlers could no longer enjoy watching the storm, and had grudgingly gone back to mucking out stalls. 
Rain pounded on the roof and leaked through dozens of cracks, forming puddles in the old straw. The entire place stank of mould and dung. He'd slept in worse. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a commentary apocalypse averted by sheer ingenuity in the new DARPA luck machine that sometimes functions and sometimes doesn't, but is very effective when it does. Plus, thanks, praise, and gratitude to Charles E. Gannon, author of Mark of Cain. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>